we got some Blue Jays tickets to give away at 1120, so don't go anywhere. It is Blair and Barker for a month. Boston Red Sox will be in town for the first of four games tonight. 7.07 first pitch. Ben Wagner will have the call. The game will, of course, be on Sportsnet TV. And Mr. Barker and myself will be along immediately following the Jays game for Blue Jays talk. So Miguel Cabrera uh, collected his 3,000th hit in his first at-bat on Saturday. He is uh, one of seven players in MLB history with 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. He's the only player in MLB history with 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, and a triple crown. Um, And, of course, with Miguel Cabrera passing 3,000 hits, the focus has turned to who might be the next player in baseball to get 3,000 hits. Now, the guys that are closest uh, are Robinson Cano, Joey Votto, guys like that are a little advanced in age to think that they might actually get 3,000 hits. I think you have to dig a little deeper and go down to players like Manny Machado, Juan Soto, to to to, to find guys with a chance at 3,000 hits. And, of course, I think Vladdy Jr., if he stays healthy, uh, if he stays healthy, would have a chance at it. But... That's one of the talking points out of Miguel Cabrera. The other, of course, is Miguel Cabrera's career. And his career started with the then Florida Marlins. He was signed as a non-drafted free agent in 1999. And in 2007, he was traded by the Marlins, along with Dontrell Willis, to the Detroit Tigers for Cameron Mabin, Andrew Miller, Eulogio de la Cruz, Mike Ribello, Burke Badenhop, and Dallas Traherne. That deal was made December 4th, 2007 at the winter meetings. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, those winter meetings were in Nashville. I could be wrong. David Sampson is host of Nothing Personal, the podcast with David Sampson. He was president of the then Florida Marlins when this deal was made. He's one of our favorites, and uh, he's agreed to join us on Blair and Barker. David, thanks so much for joining Kevin and myself. I think it was April. I think it was last April. I know you've spoken about Miguel since then, but I think it was with Dan Lebitard last April. or I might even be going back two years where you did an in-depth interview and you talked about the trade itself and why the trade was made. And can you maybe walk us, before we talk about Miguel Cabrera and what has made him so special, can you maybe walk us through the thinking behind that trade? Sure. In, in 2003, when we won the World Series, I really thought that we were going to get a stadium deal done in Miami for a new ballpark and that it was going to open in 2006. And according to our calculations, we would be able to sign him and he was going to be a cornerstone for our franchise and retire a Marlin and be a Hall of Famer. First ever Marlin Hall of Famer is what we thought. Uh, same team, whole career, just the whole package. And our stadium negotiations fell apart in 2004 or 2005. And there was no chance when that happened that we'd be able to afford him. So I sat down with our baseball people and I said, Given that we're not going to be able to resign him, what is your suggestion on how to get the most for him in a trade? 
And I was told that trading him with two years of control would be the best thing for us to do, even though it would be the worst thing ever. But it's something that if you're telling us we have to do, then we'll do it. So we started negotiating with different teams. Everybody wanted him. And when Detroit stepped up and was willing to give Maven and Miller, who were two of the top five or two of the top ten prospects in all of baseball, it was almost like the equivalent of getting Hunter Green and Vladimir Guerrero, uh, if you will. It was that big a deal to get both of them. And Detroit was very hesitant to give that up. And we were close to trading them to the Angels. And then Dave Dombrowski contacted us and said, if we include Mabin and Miller, will you include Dontrell Willis? And we had not contemplated moving Willis. We didn't need to move Willis. But knowing we had to move Cabrera, we wanted to try to get those top two prospects, and we agreed to it. And I look back, it's been 15 years. It's still the the hardest or maybe the second hardest deal I ever had to do in my career. And I, I'm still despondent about it every day, but I see him around Florida and we talk about it. He misses Miami always but recognizes that uh, it's just a business. You, know, you mentioned that the, the Angels were sniffing around as well. I looked at Miguel Cabrera, and I remember thinking at the time, big markets have got to be all over this guy, right? I mean, it wasn't like he was a secret. Uh, it, it wasn't like he was a secret. Uh, why would teams like the Yankees or the Dodgers or, hell, I don't even know the Mets, like, why wouldn't a big market team like that have been aggressive and, and go after him? Oh, the Dodgers were. We actually, at that time, we had asked for Clayton Kershaw and, um, uh, oh, God, the, the other player for the Dodgers, whose name is completely escaping me, but who became a star. And they just did not want to part with Kershaw. And I think we can now look back and understand why. Uh, with the Angels, we, we were looking at Howie Kendrick at that time and Jeff Mathis, who was going to be an all-star superstar catcher. He turned into more of a defensive catcher, who we ended up getting from your team uh, right. back in 2012, a few years later, and when his offense just wasn't there, but his defense always was. So, yeah, the Red Sox were in. Everybody was in on Miguel. Once we made him available, we didn't make any outgoing calls. Everyone called us, and we just made a list of players on each team who we'd want back in a deal. And at the end of the day, the Tigers hit the bid, and that's how they got him. Uh, throughout Miguel Cabrera's career, where have you seen the more the most growth offensively from him? Is it power? Is it bat-to-ball skills? Is it average? Where have you seen the biggest improvement? Uh, for me, the biggest improvement is really off the field, believe it or not, because when he was with us, we knew what he would be. Because he was he was that good. When he came up, I can't begin to describe to you what it's like to be around someone like Cabrera with that level of natural ability and with that level of almost disinterest in who was pitching against him, what city he was playing in. He, he didn't care about any of that. He didn't study film. He, he just saw the ball and hit it. And he was just that sort of baseball player. But he was a kid. He was 20 or 21 years old, and, and he was a superstar with a ring on his finger. I remember in 2004, we were playing, and he said, you know, we're going to win the World Series again this year, right? And his view was that he'd have, you know, Bill Russell's number of rings, that it would just happen every year. And when I've seen him recently, he, he now realizes with age how hard it is to win a World Series, and recognizes that he likely will not win another World Series in his career. 
But off the field, he became a true leader. He became someone who people in the clubhouse look to for not just on-the-field knowledge, but sort of the right thing to do off the field. And that's not to say that he was perfect by any stretch, but it is to say that he understand the he understood the role of community. He understood the responsibilities of being a superstar. And that's something that uh, I still talk about with players to this day. And now you and Jeffrey Loria also uh, owned a team, the Expos, that had Vladimir Guerrero Sr. Compare the two for me. <laughs> the two best players who were ever part of any franchise over my 18 years, that's for sure. Vladimir Guerrero was different in that I didn't see I saw him best arm I've ever seen. Uh, similar to me at the plate, he was a better bad ball hitter than Miguel Cabrera. Mm-hmm. So Guerrero, it didn't matter where the ball was. It was in his zone. So to me, he had more hot zones than Miguel did. Uh, Cabrera had a different type of power, uh, whereas, whereas in a different type of, of baseball intelligence. And I don't say this uh, to disparage Vladimir, but Vladimir was famous for he would, once he'd get on base, he'd keep running around the bases till he scored a runner or got thrown out. Like, he never really focused on, oh, I shouldn't make the second out at, at third base. And it just he didn't think about the fundamentals of baseball that way. Whereas Cabrera knew more about that and, and focused on that a little more. Uh, Guerrero was much quieter in the clubhouse, was much more with his mother and was much more uh, around family. There was always his family in the clubhouse. And whereas Cabrera was a little bit more of a partier than Guerrero was off the field. And I think that that, uh, I don't think that impacted their careers in any way, but I think that that was certainly an issue. Guerrero, I was much more worried about injuries than I ever was with Cabrera. Because for whatever reason, every time Guerrero was on the field, I just got nervous that he was getting hurt. And Cabrera, I viewed as more of a tank-like person. Mm. <laughs> but in, in terms of their, their ability to play baseball, and, and I was in spring training, you were there when we got to see Pujols and we saw McGuire. Yeah. So I've seen many Ramirez. I mean, really, the, the right-handed hitting during my time in baseball was just incredible. And uh, But Guerrero and, and Cabrera certainly were the two best. But whenever we talk about Vladimir Guerrero Jr. here, uh, we talk about protection, people hitting around him. You know, the better they are as hitters, the more pitches he'll get. You're the perfect guy to ask this. Is, is there something to that, or is there certain hitters that are just so great at it that it just really doesn't matter? They're going to get theirs, and, and they're going to have their numbers every single year. It's great that you asked that. No one's ever asked me that. I love that because we would talk about that because fans would say that, and we'd have the owners say, we got to get – Protection. We got to have someone in the order, and then you've got then you sign players because you say, "Oh, he's going to hit behind Stanton, so Stanton's going to now get better pitches." The best hitters in baseball know how to hit the one pitch per at bat that they get, and every player, no matter whether they have protection or not, gets one pitch. Barry Bonds taught me that uh, when he was a coach for us. He said, "There's no excuse because every at bat you're getting one hit, one pitch to hit, and if you miss it." then just take the walk, get on base, but know the zone. Guerrero was not as good at, at knowing the zone because he didn't care about the zone because he could hit the bad balls. Uh, Cabrera was better at that. But you don't really need protection if you're a good enough hitter because you're going to get that one pitch and you're going to do damage with it. David, we had you on, uh, I think it was writer's block, a couple of years ago when 
uh, Bo and Vladdy Jr. had just broken into the majors. And we were talking about sort of the, the, the come-to-Jesus moment that the Jays were going to have at, at, at one point in time where they're going to have to, they're gonna have to give these, these, these guys multi-year contracts. Big multi-year contracts, you know, Tatis Jr. sort of multi-year contracts. Um, so far, that hasn't happened. We know that uh, the Jays renewed Bichette this year after he, he just basically said, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign for fifteen thousand dollars less than I think I'm worth. It's uh, you know, tactical ploy with arbitration coming, all of that good stuff. Um, you made the point, and I've, I've actually, I wrote it down, and I'm looking at it right now. You made the point that realistically in your mind realistically this organization is going to have to choose one of these two they're going to have to choose one of these two to, to truly commit to long term and then the other guy will be a matter of can we make a three-year deal we're carrying through arbitration etc cetera, etc cetera. how do you think the jays are going to now that these guys have been in the league for a couple of years how do you think this is going to play out have you changed your thinking at all in that area no, I haven't. I think it's pretty clear that uh, there's very few teams who can have two $30 million players on them and, and win. You need to have a very high payroll in order to do that. It's not like basketball where you put together a big three and you're guaranteed you know, to, to get deep into June. I think my issue with, with Guerrero and Bichette, what we said, and it's turned out to be prescient, is that they don't need the money they've got. You know, they're, they, they don't need to sign early. It's not like Acuna or Albies in Atlanta. Where you're you're giving them that them you're saving their family and giving them generational wealth. I think Guerrero is happy to wait for what he believes will be his value, which could be five hundred million dollars. But at the same time, if you're the Blue Jays, you have to be wary. And and I love Vladimir Jr. As you know, we've known him since he was a kid. My concern with him is his longevity, even with the DH. It's not just injuries, but he's got a much different body type than his dad. And I think that anyone who watched both play, I, I think you'd agree that yes. junior and senior just are completely different physical specimens. And I worry that uh, Vladimir, over time, could turn into, let's say, Prince Fielder. And if that happens, it's not that he's not on a Hall of Fame trajectory. It just means eventually the body breaks down and you don't get that longevity. And if you're a team like Toronto, you're too good to have too much dead money on your team and you're too smart for that. So I, I really don't know what the Jays are going to do, but I'm not, I would not be giving Guerrero a 10-year, $450 million contract. No question about it. Now, whenever I look at Cabrera's stats, you know he is one more double away from 600 doubles. With all the other numbers that he has, he's one double away from 600, and there's only two other guys that have ever done that, Pujols and Aaron. But i got to ask you, you'd know this better than anybody. He, he does have two more years left on his deal. He's 39 years old this year. How, how important is hitting 300 in a career to Cabrera? He's hitting 310 right now. He's getting older, right? The bat speed, you can tell. Like he's thinking a lot about going to right center the other way instead of getting the head out. And and I just wonder, he's got all the other stats. To finish his career hitting 300, how important is that to him? I don't think it's important at all to him. I think no? that for him, he wants to play as long as he's having fun. But I, I think Detroit realizes, I mean, he's got, he'll finish out this deal. If Detroit doesn't get better uh, and, and, and if they're not competing to play in October, I'm not so sure he'd even finish out the deal there, believe it or not. Because if the Angels can jettison Pujols, then the Tigers can do that to Cabrera. And at some point, you have to realize that uh, you're taking up at-bats 
from potentially more productive players. And it sounds like heresy to even talk about. But Miguel Cabrera today is not the Miguel Cabrera of five years ago at not even close. Mm-mm. And if the Tigers want to compete and try to win a championship, I don't. he can't be the centerpiece of a championship team on the field anymore. He, and he knows that. And, and we're not saying anything too controversial. He just he, he knows that. So I think that for him, he just will play until they take the bat out of his hands. But I don't think that when he looks at his numbers, you'd be surprised how many players don't focus on that sort of thing. There are some who do, who, who want to be taken out. I've had players who say, I'm going to be 300 for the season, so I'd rather not play the last game if we're out of it. Or we'll do the math and say, if, if you're 0 for 3, we're going to pinch hit for you because if you go for 4, you'll be at 299. So those things, there are some players, but Cabrera's not one of them. David, really good of you to join us today. Thanks so much. That's great stuff. Hey, Thank have you. A, have a great day. Speak soon. Take care. That is David Sampson, host of Nothing Personal, the podcast with uh, David Sampson. You can also catch him regularly on Dan Lebitard's show, and it's always a hoot. Um, and, yeah, the uh, uh, that that seeing Cabrera a little bit when he was with the Marlins, um, I don't think at that time, it's going to seem odd to say it, I don't think at that time I fully appreciated how good he was and how good he was going to be. And I've often wondered if he had somehow, Kevin, if he had played in a, you know, in a New York or an LA or something like that, he would have been, he would have been a big, big deal. Uh, because at his height and his pomp, he was, he was an absolute joy to watch. Yeah. The, the numbers are eye popping. And, and I, I know if I'm hundred doubles that stuck, snuck up on me, that's something else, man. That that's a lot with with only three people having to hit three hundred and and the three thousand hits and and the and the five hundred homers and now the six hundred doubles that that's that's something else I I know if I were Miguel Cabrera I would want to finish my career hitting three hundred like yeah. just to say basically that you're you're doing something that that not many people can ever do and you being right handed and, and the the ball that goes down and away from you forces you to have to use the entire field and to for you for you to finish your career hitting 300. I know for me anyway, that'd be, a, that'd be a big deal. I want to ask you about something David said, talking about the, you asked him the question about protection and how important is protection for, you know, for a guy like Miguel Cabrera or indeed for somebody like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And he talked about Barry Bonds, who when he was the Marlins hitting coach for a year, talked about how every at bat, if you're a good hitter, every at bat, you get one pitch to hit. And the idea is you hit that pitch or you take the walk, which kind of sums up what Barry Bonds was all about. Um, I'm not going to ask you if that's true or not, but as a hitter, do you see that logic? Yeah, maybe. You know, Barry had one advantage. He's left-handed. That's the advantage that he's had over the great hitters, including Vladimir Guerrero Jr., is that he was left-handed and he could, you know, most of the guys he was facing, now a lot of the times because he was such a good left-handed hitter that they would try and match up and throw a bunch of lefties, but he faced more righties than he did lefties is the point. And he got a lot of stats off of hitting right-handed pitchers. Because he can see, he can, he could, you could see the lefties better. The left, the ball runs naturally into you and you can see them better. No, well, you could 
see, see the, the right. Could, better. I'm sorry. Yeah, there That's there you I mean. go. Yeah, you could see the ball coming out of the hand. You could, you know, he had such a great eye. He had plate awareness. He knew where he was standing on the plate. He took away the outside pitch because of how close he was standing to the, on the plate. That ball away would look right down the middle to him. And as, as quick as his hands were getting through the zone, he could do things that most human beings couldn't do. But uh, I, I, I'm on the fence about the protection thing. I I just don't know. The way we are seeing Vladdy pitched, as young as he is, can he continue to have the patience that he has at the plate? That's the question. That's what it is. You have to buy into that approach. Like, you have to, okay, a runner on third base with less than two outs. I know they're pitching around me. Can I go up unless they give the four fingers and take that walk? And, you know, I'm frisky. I'm young. I'm trying to get paid. Is me walking getting me paid? I, I look. I know that the teams are looking at at on base percentage and walks, and they think that's sexy. But is that sexy for everybody? Do, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Do you always want him to walk? That's the thing for me. A young guy has to buy into that, and Barry had to buy into that a little later in his career. Early in his career, he wasn't buying into that. He's wanting to swing it because that's how he knew he's getting paid. Yeah, see, but I also think I, I also think that Barry. Again, I I, I don't. I mean, I covered Barry a little bit, and I, I covered him when he was younger. I also think that with Barry, it became a point of pride, almost of stubbornness, that I'm not going to give in to you. You can you can throw me four. If you're going to throw me four pitches out of the zone, I'm not going to give in to you because I know that I'm going to get that one pitch at some point this game. To me, it was just a combination of Bonds' supreme confidence arrogance and stubbornness that that separated him from from any other player i i think barry barry wanted to piss people off <laughs> and i think the perfect game for barry bonds is a game where he had three walks and a tape measure home run because that's like yeah i i i beat you you beat yourself that day and then i beat you I think that was the perfect game for Barry Bonds. And it's the thing I always admired about him is just the acceptance of the fact that this was his reality. And he turned it into a strength, and he turned it into something that motivated him. I just and, – and, and that's why when people ask me the best hitter you've seen, it, the, in total, it's got to be Barry Bonds. I just I, I I just I haven't seen a hitter that could completely change the way people thought about pitching in a game the way Barry Bonds did. Yeah, well, I've been on the field with him. I've seen uh, Phil Gardner walk in with the bases loaded when I was playing first base. Uh, and I and I, I can't wait to ask Dusty Baker why he batted Jeff Kent behind Barry Bonds. Was it for protection or was it to make the team pay because you're pitching around Barry? Mm-hmm. Is that is that the point? I, I, it's take you inside a, a manager's thought process and an organization's thought of, okay, you're, you're, you understand what they're trying to do to that guy, but – how do you make them pay by the guy hitting behind? Is it more protection getting that guy pitches to hit, or is it making them pay? And I don't, I don't really know what the answer to that is. You just have to ask the guy that's actually been through it before. Yeah, it's. Uh, I subscribe to the school of thought, Kevin, that when we talk about protecting a hitter, quite often we need to look at the guy in front of the hitter we're talking about as providing protection for the hitter. Because what that guy does more often than not determines 
or can determine the pitch that that the next guy is going to get. I mean, if he's hit a double or he's on second base or he's on first base, automatically you're going to the stretch. You're not going to the windup. That, for me, is, is, and that's not an original thought. I mean, a lot of managers that I've covered said the same thing. Forget about who's hitting behind the guy. I'm worried about who's hitting in front of the guy because that, that's the guy that is going to structure how the pitcher attacks my hitter in that moment. Yeah, I would love to say that, but if you just an example of that, you say Kikuchi with the bases loaded wanted absolutely nothing to do with Alex Bregman with the bases loaded with Alvarez standing on the on-deck circle. And I can tell you multiple times he peeked over to make sure that that was who was standing on the on-deck circle. Alvarez is a really good hitter. I don't care if he's left-handed or not. And for, you know, back to your – I don't even know if that's a theory. You would like to think that that's the case most of the time. But I, I just – I think it's it's management. I think you're wanting to control management of the game, and if I can give up only one run instead of four runs, I'm going to do that no matter what the situation of the game is because of who's at the plate. That's the – the game's changed. It's just uh, – and you have to have great players like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as hitters buying into what they're trying to do. That's the thing I question. Is, is, he, is he okay with walking two or three times a game? I'm not sure he is. He hasn't gotten paid yet. I, I'm just I'm just not sure he's capable going an entire season of having that approach at the plate. Yeah, I don't know, Kev. I, I listen. I think. I mean, Vladdy's going to get what he's going to get. People aren't going to look at Vladdy and go, you know what? He's getting walked too much. I'm not going to give him thirty million a year. Eh, it's not. That's not. That's well, not my point. My case. point is maybe his numbers go down because he's having the mindset of walk first. Because that's that's only nature to you. Like it's it's nature that I know these guys are wanting to pitch around me. I'm the guy they don't want to let beat them, and I know this before the game ever starts. And for you to actually go up at that age and have that approach against a right-handed pitcher, uh, look at the tenth inning yesterday. That that right-handed pitcher throws a bazillion miles an hour. Wanted nothing to do with him. That's the thing. Even with the lefty on the on-deck circle, that, that's that's my point. And it, that's just a little sideshow of, of what I think Vladdy has to go through in, an, in an, an entire season. We are giving you the chance to win Blue Jays tickets all season long here on Blair and Barker, whether you listen on the radio on Sportsnet 590 The Fan, watch us on Sportsnet 360, and again, we will be back on 360 starting Monday, or on our podcast, which is available wherever you get your favorite podcasts all you have to do is text the correct answer to our daily baseball trivia question to 59590 very simple friday we asked you to name this former player he owns a 293 career batting average with the blue jays he played first base and finished his career with the red sox the answer was john olrude a lot of people had a lot of guesses but the answer was john olrude today's question is to win tickets to see the jays and astros at the rogers center on friday that's oh, going to be quite a game. Today's question is, which Astros pitcher holds the team record for most strikeouts in a season? Again, to win tickets to see the Jays and Astros at the Rogers Center on Friday, April 29th, text the correct answer to 59590. The question is, which Astros pitcher holds the team record for most strikeouts in a season. Text the correct answer to 59590. You could be going down to the Rogers Center on Friday to see the Jays take on the Houston Astros. If you're going down to the Rogers Center tonight, you will see the Jays and the Boston Red Sox open a four-game series. Lou Merloni will join us next to break down the Red Sox.
You're listening to Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. All right, welcome back to Blair and Barker on Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and wherever you get your favorite podcast, we'll, we will be back on TV starting next Monday from 10 to noon Eastern, and we will be on Blue Jays Talk following every Blue Jays game this week, including tonight's game, the first of four against the Boston Red Sox at the Rogers Center. You know, we've talked a lot about how offense is down across baseball, and uh, I mean, the numbers the numbers speak for themselves, speak for themselves, and there's a variety of reasons put forward for that to be the case. Um, I, right now, just tend to Air on the side of don't draw any conclusions about anything because it was a different spring training due to the lockout. And, you know, this is a game that's kind of had its natural rhythms upset over the past three years because of the pandemic, because of labor stoppages and other things. So I tend to think that when you have that much dislocation in anything, um, when you have that much dislocation in anything, it's understandable that things may not go according to Hoyle right out of the gate. Having said that, the Boston Red Sox come into town. Uh, they are 7-9, and nine, finishing off a weekend series against the Tampa Bay Rays. They went 2-5 and five last week. They've scored 16 runs in their last seven games. And if you look at that lineup, you're probably looking at the upcoming series with a little bit of concern because I, I, there are a lot of things I thought about the Boston Red Sox. Not scoring runs was not a thing that I thought I'd, I would be talking about with this team. Lou Merloni is a former major leaguer. He's co-host of Merloni and Faria, and he joins us on Blair and Barker. Lou, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying that, aren't I? Even though the you know scoring's down around Major League Baseball, I still thought the Red Sox offense would be uh, would be a little more impressive at this point in the season. I'm not I wouldn't worry about it, but I expected a little more out of them. Well, it's definitely the reason why you're sitting there at 7 and 9 to be honest with you. I'm, I'm kind of surprised they're only 3 games out with the way they've swung the bat. They probably could be 6 by now. And and they have been getting good pitching and I still think big picture it's almost the other way around. The pitching is still a concern. The offense you got to think is going to come around, but um they just they go out there and score in like one inning, you know what I mean? And then it's just easy innings. It's just one, two, three, no effort whatsoever. The chase rate is through the roof. I mean, Alex Gore always talks about, you know, trying to get the balls in the middle of the plate and stay away from the edges. Well, they've been living on the edges and chasing pitchers' pitches. But too many good hitters, I think, in this lineup for them to continue it. But it's a huge concern here early on in the year. Lou, I was just about to ask you about the chase rates, and, and, and good hitters are going outside the zone early in counts. You know, it's yep. one thing to do it with two strikes, but it's it's another thing to do it 0 and, you know, they're missing by a lot. Do you, have any, you think you know the reason why that would be? No, and I think part of it is, you know, like you just start pressing as a team, right, thinking it'd be like, I'm going to be the guy that's going to get us out of this thing. I'm going to jump all over this pitch. Next thing you know, it's that little slider down and in, you're chasing. And you look at Rafi Devers. I mean, it's kind of like he's a really good bad ball hitter. But because of that, man, he gets himself out so many times. Like He gets himself in bad counts so often, chasing the first pitch fastball over his head, 
chasing that breaking ball down at his ankles. And then, of course, like, you know, two nights later, he'll take one of those and hit it out of the ballpark. <laughs> but uh, he, he's had a tough stretch of it. And I think for the most part, there's a lot of those guys that um, I think are just sort of feeling that pressure of trying to do too much. And obviously getting J.D. Martinez back in that lineup, getting him right, he's missed some games. That could help as well. But they got to start swinging. J.D. Martinez is expected to be in the lineup tonight. We, I, I don't think we know yet uh, who you know, the entire list of Red Sox players, I could be wrong, Lou, who, who won't be able to make it up here because, uh, because they're unvaccinated. We know Tanner Houck will not be up here. Chris Sales on the, uh, on the IL, so it doesn't matter. Do we have any idea if there's anybody else in, in a similar situation? No, they haven't really been keeping that close to the vest. Eventually here today, they got to announce it at some point, but we do know Tanner Houck is not making the trip. And um, from what I understand, it's really nobody in the lineup or obviously none of their starters. They've announced those guys still waiting on Thursday because I think they're, I think to be honest with you, like Whitlock is supposed to be slotted for Thursday, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if core of the Sox kind of go for that win. If they have, if they have an opportunity in the first two or three games and then maybe call up an arm for that third game or fourth game rather. But from what I understand, it's no real impact. Um, the relievers are maybe a concern because they're so thin out there. They can't afford to lose a guy like a Strom or, or Robles, that's for sure. We'll yeah, you mentioned Garrett Whitlock, and my goodness, I, I mean, we've, look, this team, the Blue Jays, they've had Rule 5 draft picks that have gone on to have tremendous, tremendous careers, but I, I look at him, I look at that, that start he made, it's going to be hard. It's, I mean, I understand he's such a great bullpen arm, and you're right, I think it's going to come down to managing to win a series. But my God, Lou! Given the the injuries yeah. to to that rotation, how do you how do you keep that arm out of the rotation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I come from the school of like you know your best pitcher should probably be in the rotation, especially if he can start. <laughs> yes, you know. And today's game, it's like, nah, he's better served giving us two or three out of the bullpen. And it's like, oh, okay. But um, no, he's been so dominant. To be honest, it goes back to really building this team because he should be in this rotation. Alex should be in this rotation. But because they just really didn't do enough in the back end of the bullpen, you know, they're, they're trying to mix and match and, and use him to kind of close a hole. And he's, he's dominant every time he goes out there. But, you know, they should have the luxury to be able to put their best pitcher in the rotation because they went out and, you know, got enough guys in the back end, and they just didn't. They just don't have enough. I mean, every night you're just wondering who the hell is going to come in out of that bullpen, and you just hope it goes well. And they've thrown the ball well so far. It's just that with track record, you don't have much trust. Lou, Lou I, I've watched Trevor's story uh, up close and personal. I've watched him on TV. I got to be honest with you. I, I, I'm a little—I'm not saying concerned, but I, I'm a little puzzled with the arm strength. Even at second base, you see him—you know—he has to make those weird kind of throws where his body's going one way, and then his throw—he's bouncing it. It looks just like he's forcing it, and he'll lollipop it over there. Would that change the mindset of the organization about Bogarts if they're noticing that the arm strength is just not there? Yeah, and it was a concern. Actually, as far as the signing goes, there was some concern with the elbow. There has been in Colorado in the past. And the thought was at second base, you know, it would be fine, and maybe he rehabs it and gets it stronger and everything else. So I think that's something you keep an eye on. And, you know, Mark, I think he's starting to like, transition to second base. I think that internal clock is off a little bit. Like, he plays second like he's at short still. Like, he's made a couple plays up the middle that he comes in on a ball, and most second basemans will reset their feet and throw it. He throws it on the run. And a couple of those backhand plays, he's making those plays like he thinks he's in the hole it's short and he's got to get rid of it quick. And he doesn't realize that he could set and make an, a stronger throw. So 
I think he's still trying to adapt to that like internal clock, how much time he has transition to second base. But uh, he's still fantastic. I mean, the range has been outstanding. It's just, um, but the arm, I think, is something to keep an eye on. It's been a problem in the past. Lou, really good of you to join us today. Thanks so much. Thanks, buddy. You got it. All right, guys. Anytime, man. Enjoy the series. Thank Take you. care. That you too. That is Lou Merloni joining us on Blair and Barker. And again, the first game of this four-game series is tonight at seven oh seven. You heard Lou Merloni say uh, the Red Sox uh, will be without Tanner Houck, who is unvaccinated because of the Canadian border restrictions. Uh, that's going to be an issue for a lot of teams coming up here. We saw it with the Oakland Athletics. We'll see it with the Boston Red Sox. Um, Chris Sale, also unvaccinated, but because he's on the IL, that's not much of a concern. So, as Lou Merloni said, the Red Sox have been playing this pretty close to the vest. They are, keep in mind, they are not required to inform anybody about who is going on the COVID IL until the player actually goes on the COVID IL. There's nothing there's there there's there's nothing saying that, you know, they have to let us know forty eight hours in advance or, or, or twenty four hours in advance. Um, but we do know that Tanner Houck will not be here. Garrett Whitlock, this is I mean Kevin, th- th- this this is this will be an interesting decision for Alex Cora. Garrett Whitlock is a it can be unhittable. Now, how do you utilize him in this series? We've talked about the importance of winning series. I'm sure Alex Cora is looking at that way as well. And the question will be, do you have enough confidence in your bullpen that if you've got a chance to beat a Barrios or a Gossman or a Manoa, the Jays, the three top starters, do you use Whitlock to close out a game? Do you save him to start the final game of the series? I mean, what happens if you've lost the three of the first four going into that final game, and then you've got Garrett Whitlock going? I, it's I, my sense is probably need to see how how the first two games of the series go, Kevin. I mean, if it's me, I don't know about you, but if it's me, I want to see Garrett Whitlock start. Yeah, I don't know. Look, I think everybody you talk to about uh, Cora, his strength is feeling the game, understanding what his yes. players are going through. We we even noticed that when he was talking about, you know, I managed it like a playoff game the first couple of weeks of the season just because of the, our, our team That's was right. making me feel like we had to have this win and I'm going to do everything possible. If I have to throw a starter that I'm going to use two days from now, I'm going to do that. That for me is... You know, if you're if you if you're an Alex Cora fan, that's sort of the thing you hang your hat on is he'll do whatever it takes to win a game when he feels like it's warranted. And Garrett Whitlock is one of their better pitchers, and I think that's what you have to remember: pitchers, pitchers can be used anytime. There's not a certain schedule for certain guys, and I mentioned they're using him as a hybrid guy. This is sort of like you wanted Nate Pearson to look is you can use him anytime. I know we might have him scheduled two or three days from now to start, but if I need him in the first game, I'm going to use him. And I'm sure that's the way Cora's going to go about this is, you know, right now their record will say that they have to win, start winning games. I don't care if it is April. This this is what playoff teams do, especially in the American League East. You can you can fall behind far enough in, in the April that makes it that much tougher in August and September. And these managers, at least these good managers, don't want to try and do that. You're starting to see Charlie do that. You're starting to see pitching coaches talking managers in to doing things a little earlier than they're supposed to do. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what will happen with Cora. Hey, Barker, you know what time it is. 
It's time for Barker's Backleg Bits. De lado, Kevin Baker. El envío saca batazo de fly profundo al bosque derecho, cuadrangular bestial para Kevin Baker. We said Barker's Bits, not Baker. Uh, that is a, uh, a memorable winter ball call involving a home run by Kevin Baker. They all were, Jeff. This is the part of the show where we solicit viewer or listener, listener and viewer, questions. Uh, have anything to do with baseball. Doesn't necessarily have to do with the Blue Jays. It would be great because that's our focus. But it can have anything to do with baseball. Anything that allows us to sort of pick away at the deepest, darkest recesses of, of, Barker's, of Barker's mind. And you can submit your questions by DMing me. SN Jeff Blair is my Twitter handle. I throw out a reminder, usually an hour before the show, an hour and a half before the show, and uh, DMs are open. So feel free to submit questions. We had, we had a ton. We had a ton of questions today. I'm going to apologize to, to every. We're not, obviously, we're not going to get to every question that was sent in. Like, we got like 25 DMs today for Barker. So we're not going to have time to get to, get to all of them. Uh, but make it good, and I'll pick it out. Michael, whose Twitter handle is Michael underscore Jays fan. Uh, talking about the Kyle Schwarber video last night, we all saw that Kyle Schwarber got ejected for erupting at yet another bad call from Angel Hernandez. And I loved John Heyman tweeted out, sources say that Angel Hernandez can't pick out the E on the I chart. <laughs> Which I thought was, you know, was 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 brilliant. I mean, the, Angel Hernandez, see, and, and people call it an ump show, and they say it's Angel Hernandez putting himself in the pit. No, Angel Hernandez just Angel Hernandez just sucks. He is a horrible umpire. He's not doing it to feed his ego. He is awful. He is brutal. I, there's no other way to put it. He does stuff like that because he stinks at his job. Anyhow, Michael uh, says that uh, that Schwarber, vid Schwarber video is great, and indeed it is. But automated balls and strike system, ABS, probably says that outside pitch clipped the zone. Is this what we want? Should ABS be used on a challenge system? For example, it always runs, but the umpire still calls balls and strikes, and teams have two or three challenges to ask for a review. In other words, he's what, what Michael is saying is you use the ABS system for... Uh, a, a, a challenge process. It's not always utilized to call balls and strikes, but it is utilized to determine whether or not a challenge is legit. Kevin, I don't know about you, but I don't like, I just don't like the idea of challenges. I think if you're going to do this, you use the system for the whole game. I'm it, it's taken me a while to come around to this. I still have some issues with it. I know we've talked about this. Morgan Sword and the folks at Major League Baseball will tell you the problem is you've got to make sure that what constitutes baseball's strike zone fits the system. I, I And I've said this. I think before we use ABS, we're going to have to take a serious look at the strike zone and figure out what we want it to be. Because... 
there seems to be a technical issue with the idea of a square box. This is just again, this is from Morgan Sword, who's one of the guys involved in 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 the in in in, in Major League Baseball's attempt to you know to to institute more stuff like this into the game. But Kevin, I would I don't want it used for a challenge. If you're going to go automatic have an automatic balls and strike system. I want it used the whole time. We could have fixed this a long time ago by holding umpires to a higher standard. Treat them just like players. If you stink at your job and they have numbers and they can rate these guys as, as long as hard as they want to rate them, if you're bad at your job, why are you in the big leagues? The problem is you've got to make sure that you have you've got to make sure you have better people to replace them. I mean, the assumption here is that there are better people to replace these people. I don't, and we're never. I don't think we're ever going to get. A, I don't think we're ever going to get over that because what what I consider to be a good umpire and what you consider to be a good umpire may not be the same thing. I, I think the I think the automatic balls and strike system is coming. Uh, yeah, like I said, I would rather have it used fully. I just don't like. I don't like bogging the game down with challenges. Mo- most of I the really time, the pl- like most of the time, the players will tell you whether an umpire is good or bad. That that's one of the things. Do the eye test. The um, the the players will tell you that. The the, the having a uh, instant replay on strike three, telling telling you that would disrupt the the attitude of the the team that just threw strike three, and now you're having to stand out there and wait for that call, whether it's a, a striker ball. See, I don't like that. I I just think they missed an opportunity here to hold umpires accountable. Stop letting bad umpires be umpires for a bazillion years. Yeah, but I guess the point is, if we assume that technology's coming it, you, it, it's got to be all in like I, I don't want yeah, it, I don't want the... it to be one foot in and one foot out if you're going to have an automatic balls and strike system okay it's there for good you're not going to be able to please everybody there's going to be issues with that too people are not going to like something about that and that'll be players that'll be pitchers that'll be fans that's not a perfect situation either and yeah look I I think you got to be all in or not in at all how's that uh, that makes sense. Uh, Kurt Wallace. Hey, Jeff, longtime listener to your show. Just wondering if Kevin has an idea why Bo Bichette looks so late fouling pitches off to the right uh, of the first base side. Let's, we've just got a couple of minutes left. Let, uh, let's talk a little bit in that time about Bo's approach. I love that question, Kurt. Thanks. Yeah, he's, ser- he's searching. The leg kicks a lot of parts. You know, you got to get it started on time. You got to get it down on time, which might be the most important thing. I talk about athletic position, no, you know, all the time. That's the most important part of a swing is when your front foot lands, you got a little separation from your knob, your bottom hand to your front foot. And consistently with the leg kick, he doesn't have that. He's in between. That's why he's late. And he guesses he guesses way too much for me that is it for Blair and Barker for a Monday again the Jays and Red Sox first of four tonight at the Rogers Center Kevin and myself will be along for Blue Jays talk immediately following the game 416-870-0590 star 591-888-666-0590 the numbers as always thanks for joining us Again, we're on Sportsnet 590, The Fan on TV on 360 next week and wherever you get your favorite podcast. Have a great day.